Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today we're going to break down the recent clinical practice guideline for lateral elbow pain and really jump into what different kind of interventions are best depending on what phase of rehabilitation the patient is in. We're sitting down with two authors of the CPG, Dr. Anne Lockadoo and Dr. Joseph Matthew Day. Dr. Lockadoo is a physical therapist, PhD, and certified hand therapist with over 30 years of experience. She's currently chair of the research committee and coordinator of clinical practice guideline development for the Academy of Hand and Upper Extremity Physical Therapy. And she headed the guideline development group for the CPG that we're going to be covering today. Dr. Joseph Matthew Day is a physical therapist and PhD, as well as an associate professor at the University of Dayton. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. And thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights. Today, we are jumping into the lateral elbow pain and muscle function impairments, the clinical practice guidelines from December 2022. Uh, before we dive into this very sizable, sizable document. Who is this talking about? What are we finding during our examination that tells us that this CPG applies to the patient in front of us? The CPG applies to individuals who have lateral elbow pain that can be attributed to the injury of common extensor tendon of the wrist. And it's usually caused by repetitive use of the extremity, oftentimes during work, but essentially pain is aggravated by loading of the wrist extensors. Anything else that we're looking at on the exam, any other like diagnostic testing or any other differential diagnoses that we should be aware of for this patient? Lateral elbow tendinopathy is a condition in which it's very important to rule out other potential diagnoses that could be causing the lateral elbow pain. So things like cervical radiculopathy, radial tunnel syndrome or nerve impingement in that area, any changes in the joint or instability of the radial head, or even myofascial trigger points in the area can mimic tendinopathy in that area. So there's got to be a good differential diagnosis made. And it's really important because the clinical tests used to make the diagnosis of lateral elbow tendinopathy are not perfect. So when you look at some of those tests, two of them, like your middle finger extension tests and wrist extension tests, are moderately good in ruling out the condition given a negative test because they've got pretty good sensitivity, but there are no specificity values. And so we don't really know what it means when someone tests positive because there hasn't been a lot of research on that. One of the long extensor stretch, the Mills test maneuver, is one that has perfect specificity according to one study, but there hasn't been enough think, testing of those particular special tests to give us a lot of confidence in what we're seeing when we're trying to rule in and rule out based on the main three diagnostic tests that we would use clinically. So again, it goes back to that differential diagnosis. 
Let's talk about outcome measures. So, so someone's coming in with with this lateral elbow pain. What are the the best outcome measures that we should be using? And then after that, let's kind of jump into some of the impairments, the physical impairment measures. Of the self-report measures, the numeric pain rating scale and either the patient-rated tennis elbow evaluation or the disabilities of the arm, shoulder, and hand have strong evidence backing their use in monitoring the progress of patients with lateral elbow tendinopathy. And it's important to, for clinicians to know that you've got to measure it at baseline and at at least one other point in the course of treatment. So at the very least at, at discharge. For individuals with, they might have a demanding occupation, or they might be a musician or an athlete, then the use of the patient-specific function scale is recommended. If we rule out differential diagnoses, we have our outcome measure. What impairment measures are worth it for us to spend time on? Pressure pain threshold, pain-free grip strength, I think, are probably the two of my most favorite impairment measures to take. But you can also Look at maximum grip strength when the elbow is flexed versus the elbow extended can give you a nice differential because, of course, when the person's elbow is in a flexed position for standardized grip strength testing, when you go for maximum grip, the flex position typically produces a greater grip strength measure than when an individual with tendinopathy of the elbow extends the elbow, it's going to mechanically challenge the musculature a little bit more. And so maximum grip strength isn't quite as great. And you guys go into something pretty unique for lateral elbow pain and this determination of irritability stage. You have like four different kind of stages that you can kind of categorize people into. And then that affects prognosis and kind of how you choose interventions. So do you mind touching on that? As Ann said, for symptom modulation, you know, you're looking at patients with more diffuse pain, higher levels of pain, you know, greater than seven out of 10, higher disabilities. And so when we look at the evidence here and what we came up with, you know, we see the the moderate, um, the kind of higher level moderate and even weaker evidence points to things like unloading. So like the, for example, like the rigid, deloading, rigid taping, kinesio taping is in there as well. And then sort of your kind of usual suspects, what things you would think during, to modulate symptoms. The, the Actually, the combination of cryotherapy and, and burst TENS gave us a little bit higher level evidence than just ice by itself, which is kind of interesting um, as we were putting studies together. And then, of course, iontophoresis and, and even laser therapy gives us at least some, some evidence, some weaker evidence, albeit, but some evidence. And then, of course, you you know, we can go to, you know, expert opinion and theoretical foundational knowledge. And some of this makes sense, like the ergonomic corrections and education and workstation modifications. You know, the literature just isn't there yet. There are a few studies that that may point to its efficacy, but we still think professionally that this is an important piece, particularly to start with and um, in the symptom modulation category. If we move to, you know, mobility, this is you know, mobility is, I think, a good name for this category because we're, we're sort of in this middle phase where we're transitioning out of that irritable phase. And it's kind of what you would think, you know, the focus is on emotion itself. And I, I sort of look at this category as a clinician as like, hey, 
you know, I'm going to start some some low level, you know, exercise training. I'm going to start with some soft tissue work if, if it's appropriate, as well as joint mobilizations. And if you kind of think of those three things in that little bucket or category, I think it would, you know, it benefits the clinician there. And so as Ann alluded to, you know, some good evidence for uh, localized exercise at the elbow, so including the elbow and the wrist. And and interestingly, in this phase, you know, it, the literature doesn't bear out, okay, which types of contractions are we focusing on? You know, I think clinically, we, we all would kind of agree that the lower level, perhaps isometrics or even low level concentrics would be appropriate here, but the literature doesn't necessarily bear that out, um, spell it out. So you kind of have to use your own clinical reasoning there. And, and then if you go to, um, you know, there's also some some emerging evidence that regional exercises like uh, scapular and shoulder stabilizations can be helpful in this category. And, and really the same thing goes with joint mobilizations. You know, we have some pretty strong evidence that emerged for mobilizations with movements at the elbow. And then, of course, we have some weaker evidence for things like cervical mobilization, cervical manipulations as kind of a regional interdependency approach that might be helpful for some patients. As far as working with soft tissue, I, I think another component, which probably no surprise, is dry needling is, is emerging as, as, a, as a, a bit stronger evidence these days. Certainly soft tissue mobilization, whether it be just different types of massage versus instrument-assisted types of soft tissue mobilization is certainly indicated, but maybe a little bit lower evidence there. We're looking at somebody who's a little bit less irritable at this stage. If we're looking at our irritability stages that Ann outlined for us. So what's next for our loading stage? So for the loading stage, this is kind of, I think, the fun part for physical therapists. It is, of course, for me, is like where we can start to get a little creative. But we do want to pay attention to dosing the loading. And, and unfortunately, we don't have a lot of guidance in the literature here. And, and this is where I think uh, we could definitely stand to get a little more evidence and guidance as far as percent loading patients and in what positions. But anyway, the, the major thing here, of course, is uh, therapeutic exercise uh, localized to the elbow. But we did find that in conjunction with other therapies that we did give this a grade B, which is a moderate evidence. And I think that's important to note because we do highlight resistance training in grade B, and that's almost exclusively the intervention. However, as we know as clinicians, there's going to be some maybe sliding back and forth here in terms of maybe minor irritability. So, of course, manual therapy, uh, soft tissue work, and even dry needling may still be appropriate in this category with resistance training. Based on some expert opinion and, and theoretical foundational knowledge, we're recommending 40% MVIC. If we if we started the last category of mobility with the therapeutic loading at about 20% MVIC, we, we would kind of make it a uh, natural progression to that 40%. Those numbers, like I said, that's a moving target that can change based on new literature and information that we get coming in. And then I think not only concentrating on the, the dosed loading, but also starting to work the entire kinetic chain. And this could include weight-bearing exercises based on the patient's goals and, and their goals for returning to function. 
We would also consider longer lever arms. So, you know, we could go from a bent elbow, of course, to a straightened elbow. Uh, so so we can get really creative with with the whole loading thing here. But, we you know, we just want to be careful here not to irritate the patient and doing it in a stage progression. And really, the return to function, I, th- I think if we had to, to highlight the difference here between the loading and return to function, of course, the irritability is way down and almost non-existent. We're still using localized therapeutic loading with other, other interventions, and of course, we'll increase the loading. We did add more of a neuromuscular component here. And, and I would argue this is, this is, you know, the neuromuscular component's a little vague, but I would argue that this would be incorporated into, you know, strategies that relate to their goals. So, you know, for example, um, return to sport, you may add in neuromuscular components like outside distractions, like if you're an athlete and you've got noise in the background, for example, something like that. But if I were to go back and, and maybe, you know, go back to loading and even the mobility stage, I would argue that there still should be a neuromuscular component into those areas. Maybe it's a little lower level, like facilitation of certain muscle groups, whether it be visual, tactile, et cetera. I think there's a place for neuromuscular in those, but just wanted to clarify what we mean by adding that neuromuscular control in that return to function stage. That's fantastic. I think that gives a very clear and helpful roadmap for clinicians that are kind of looking at, okay, where do I start? What do I do? And how do I progress with the with the patient that's right in front of me based on kind of like how they're presenting, specifically their irritability level? How, what's the prognosis look like for these patients? Highly variable, to be honest with you. And I think we all have have seen individuals with tendinopathy of the elbow. You know, they don't even seek treatment because they they resolve on their own. And a lot of people will say that lateral elbow tendinopathy is kind of a a self limiting type of diagnosis, and it actually gets better by itself. But then, in contrast, we have people who develop symptoms and never seem to fully resolve. And so the prognosis is highly variable. And when you look at the literature, the prognostic variables aren't really great at accurately predicting outcomes once the condition has developed. So what the literature says is that higher baseline disability, higher baseline pain intensity scores predict poorer outcomes. Individuals who are manual laborers, especially if their work requires a lot of repetitive tasks involving the wrist and the wrist and the elbow, they seem to have poorer outcomes. And there have been some studies at at one year follow-up, if the dominant hand was involved, that might also negatively impact treatment success. So those are all important things to keep in mind then when we're kind of educating our patient and have some expectations while we're working with these patients. What is not recommended? We couldn't make a comment on on recommendations regarding deep transverse friction massage or ultrasound as a standalone without Mm -hmm. any other treatment. And we couldn't make a recommendation regarding the lateral counterforce brace or wrist support brace for immediate or long-term use. And that is 
uh, simply because there was a lot of conflicting evidence where one study would support and another study would not support and and actually say there, there was no benefit to using that. So it makes it very hard to make a recommendation when the evidence is out there is conflicting. What's interesting is that for the forearm orthosis and the the wrist support brace, we decided on, based on expert opinion, that if the person that you're working with is aggravated with activity and they respond positively to offloading the wrist, then use it. <laughs> use a wrist support. Or if they try a lateral counterforce brace and it helps them tolerate loading by distributing those forces, then go ahead and use it. But there isn't any evidence that that says that this would be work, working long-term for these individuals. These have shown possibly to improve pain in the immediate term. So that's a great segue because we were also looking to pick your brain on what else do we need? What else are we looking for? You know, what needs to happen in the future to continue to kind of beef up these recommendations and, and give clinicians a good roadmap into what they should and should not be doing? I think the um, overarching view, if you look in terms of interventions, surprisingly, there is no grade A evidence. And and one would I would have thought that, you know, before I started this CPG, oh, yeah, you know, eccentric therapeutic exercise for the wrist extension, for sure, that that's going to be grade A just based on studies I've read before. So I think that speaks to, you know, I, I know people get tired of hearing the higher level evidence, but but I do think that part of this is getting a little bit higher level evidence for therapeutic exercise, but also maybe even more importantly is choosing the right patients to include in these studies. I think where we, we go south is we throw in every person that presents with lateral elbow pain into these studies and we wonder why we're not getting a huge effect. It's a definitely a challenge. I know this as a researcher, but I'm not proposing that our categories are the exact way to go, but but some type of categorization I think could, could help the cause and, and probably beef up the evidence a little bit. If you look at a lot of our recommendations in this flow chart, I, I mentioned before, particularly loading, we just don't have a lot of guidance as as to when and and how to load our patients and and I think you know some of the emerging technologies ultrasound imaging with the shear wave capability may give us that opportunity to be able to tease out tendon loads and what would be appropriate at irritability stages so I I would definitely like to see some some routes and directions going that way I think there needs to be research that looks at some of the pain mechanisms underlying those cases or those individuals whose case is not resolving as we would expect it to. Because I think there's a lot of hypotheses going out there in terms of maybe the context in which these individuals are experiencing their pain. And there is this thought that perhaps there are some peripherally or centrally mediated pain states that we really haven't identified that I think would be an important avenue to research in the future. You know, I think related to that, you know, we we did mention in kind of an, an expert opinion guideline using neuromuscular control approaches. And I think that fits in nicely with these central and peripheral pain mechanisms that we're trying to understand. You know, what is 
What is the role in in neuromuscular rehab approach for these patients? Is it at a certain uh, stage? How does that fit in with with loading and traditional, you know, loading exercises? So I think there has been some emerging evidence for, you know, the neuromuscular control approach. And I just, I think exploring that a bit would be important, particularly in the light of Anne mentioning the central and peripheral pain mediators. Really appreciate you taking the time and joining us on JUSPT Insights today. It was so great to hear from the experts from the CPG. So thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Dr. Ann Lockadoo, Dr. Joseph Matthew Day, thank you so much for joining us today. And as always, we want to thank all of you for listening to JUSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.